was in 2006 or thereabouts that I started going to free lectures at the University of Melbourne, where I first heard about the climate crisis, or climate change, global warming, call it what you please. I've been hooked ever since. I've listened to scientists from all around Australia, from all around the world, and frequently the question was, from someone in the audience, Assuming just for a moment that I believe everything you say, what do I do when I leave the building now? What do I do when I get home? Well, in those days, scientists weren't really prepared for those sorts of questions. They knew all the science, they knew what we were doing in the atmosphere, and so they couldn't really directly answer that. But things have changed. Scientists these days now tell you what you should do. And of course, many other people are saying the same things, and one of those is my friend Mick Eight from Geelong. Mick is many things, but one of those is that he's responsible or partly responsible for the radio program, The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Here's something now from Mick, and you'll find the link to the actual event in the show notes. Imagine beauty, something beautiful, like a butterfly or a rainbow. The climate revolution should be about beauty, raising a flag of positivity optimism, celebration. But how could we, you might be saying, the way things are going? We're getting deeper and deeper into this mess of misinformation and lies and war in the Middle East and pressure is rising, prices keep going up, cost of living, temperature graphs are going up as well. It's, it's like it's getting out of control. How bad is it? We are rapidly reaching the point of no return for the planet. We face a triple environmental emergency, biodiversity loss, climate disruption, and escalating pollution. We need a revolution, revolutionary thinking, revolutionary action. How'd you end up in here? Oh, well, I tried to start a revolution but didn't print enough pamphlets, so hardly anyone turned up except for my mum and her boyfriend, who I hate. But I'm actually organising another revolution. I don't know if you'd be interested in something like that. Do you reckon you'd be interested? The Climate Revolution. This is the sixth episode of The Climate Revolution, a podcast series where we constantly are on the lookout for ideas for the climate grail. Uh, so uh, anything that you could do to uh, to help would be very helpful. We didn't actually need a university study to tell us this, but now we have one. Thank you, Griffith University. A study which has found that when it comes to climate, most Australians are not listening to the climate scientists. They'll just look out the window and say something like, nah. I think the weather looks all right. But hey, mate, it's not. It's not all right. The climate crisis costs $25 million every hour in extreme weather damage. 
if you put all the numbers together worldwide. That's more than $600 million of damage every day. That's not all right. It adds up to more than $4 billion when the week is gone. And on a yearly basis, that's more than $222 billion. This is from a study they did at Victoria University in Wellington, in New Zealand. And it gets worse. This is still peanuts compared to what's coming, actually, according to the researchers. Starvation of more than a billion people. A world in war, says Julian Allwood who's a professor of engineering and the environment at Cambridge University in England. What we've done with one of my cheery PhD students who worked on the question, how will society collapse if we don't act on climate change, is to try and predict for every country in the world uh, whether they will, by the end of the century, be able to access enough food through growing it or through having enough money to buy it. And it turns out that round the equator, most countries will not. So not acting on climate change means that there is a risk in the countries of Africa and Asia near the equator, not just a risk, a very high probability that not acting means starvation of more than a billion people by the end of this century. We can't have that number of people starving and retain world peace. They're not going to stay still. They're going to migrate north to where the food is. And we can't cope with migration on that scale. So not acting on climate change means a certain world war in the lifetime of anybody born from now onwards uh, the, by the end of this century. Uh, not acting means that our world will change. Acting means our world will change, but my preference is to act now so that we don't have the impossible to imagine suffering that will come from not acting. And all of this urgency has led to headlines now that look something like this. New climate debate, how to adapt to the end of the world from the Bloomberg Business Week online. Researchers are thinking about social collapse and how to prepare for it. Humanity as we know it will be wiped from the face of the earth. But this frightening future is not a story that's being told in mainstream media, not at all. The only way we're going to get anywhere with solving some of these big problems we have in society is if a lot of people come together in agreement that this is what needs to happen. Imagine, just for a moment, if we could start on a fresh. And here I speak as a climate action campaigner. Where should we begin if we were to do it all over again? We're not going to get all the rising graphs and this climate emergency under control unless a majority in the population understands what the problem is and are in agreement about how we will go the same way, the decarbonizing, circular, earth-protecting way to fix it. But what's going to connect us rather than divide us? That's where Thijs Bonekamp from Holland comes in with a new idea, or rather, a new design idea. I have seen the grail! No grail here. I have seen it! I have seen it! But there is one small problem. It's a simple. It's a very simple idea. It's one rectangle. It's one, one circle. That's it. Um, but there's so much to it now. 
and it leads to all kinds of places, all kinds of discussions, giving workshops, presentations, having a conversation much like this one. Um, it's a big adventure for me. I think it, it makes sense for me to be doing this, to uh, hopefully add something, leave something behind for my kids as well. Uh, it's not about us, it's about the next generation. Thijs Bonekamp is 45. He's a graphic designer from Harlem in the Netherlands, where he lives together with his partner Hilde and their two children, aged 15 and 11. Thijs grew up with a lot of nature around him, but since art school and later on when he moved his design studio to Amsterdam, he's mostly been surrounded by city life. Today he lives in Amsterdam, where he works together with four colleagues at a studio for visual communication called Ape to Zebra. I was once asked by somebody from the nature department of the Dutch ministry to help out with some storytelling around biodiversity. And that got me thinking, do we really need more stories? Do we need more angles? Do we need more messages on this uh, huge problem that we have, the, 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 the climate crisis? And I was wondering if if that would really help a lot, if people... Uh, are waiting for more messaging around this. It's it's so complex and and so so vast. It might be better to make it more simple. To uh, instead of uh, creating a new campaign, create some sort of symbol that could that could help people to uh, connect with, to recognize themselves in, and to tie all these stories together. And um, as a graphic designer. I'm quite used to zooming in and out on our clients, on their business, on their cause, on uh, on their uh, problem that they have. And I was looking at this uh, question from the ministry and I, I, thought, I thought, why don't we zoom out on this? And and why don't we zoom out all the way? Uh, just like uh, astronauts and, and Carl Sagan uh, had made this uh, incredible video when he was six billion kilometers away from the Earth, I think, he looked back at the Earth and seeing how tiny and fragile it really is, this tiny blue dot. It's a, it's a great video. You can find it on YouTube very easily. A pale blue dot, it's called. You'll find the link to the pale blue dot in the show notes, along with a link to Mick Eight's presentation. And now we shift to a story from The Conversation, and it's by Joshua M. Pierce, who is the Chair of Information Technology and Innovation and a professor at the Western University. The headline for his story is COP28, How Seven Policies Could Save a Billion Lives by 2100. The story begins. In a recent review of more than 180 peer-reviewed articles, which I conducted with fellow researcher Richard Pankat, we found a scientific consensus had formed around the so-called 1,000-ton rule. The 1,000-ton rule states that a person is killed every time humanity burns 1,000 tonnes of fossil carbon. Shockingly, we found that a 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise equates to a billion prematurely dead people over the next century, killed as a result of a wide range of global warming-related climate breakdowns. These findings were derived from a review of climate literature that attempted to identify future human deaths from a long list of mechanisms. 
weather-induced disasters are incredibly expensive. In America, they're finding they're having billion-dollar disasters only weeks apart, whereas once upon a time, they used to be months apart. Now, here in Australia, we have a story from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that tells us Queensland storm disaster to cost more than $2 billion, State Treasurer says, as the extent of damage grows. Yes, $2 billion. The story begins. It will cost more than $2 billion to recover from back-to-back natural disasters that hit Queensland southeast and far north in recent weeks. State Treasurer Cameron Dick says. But while scenes of devastation played out for weeks in the far north, the state government says most of the damage bill is in the southeast. Treasury has said storms on the Gold Coast, Logan and Scenic Rim on Christmas and New Year's Day will account for three quarters of the total damage bill. It will be a lot of money, Mr Dick said. These are very early estimates, but I think it will increase significantly over the next weeks and months. The numbers have been extraordinary. Experts are still telling the damage bill. Next we have a trio of pieces from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, Terry Bloom, the owner of Stone Bend Farm in Newfield, New York, built a greenhouse. He's using it for more than growing plants. The 4,000-square-foot timber-framed structure houses a farm-to-table kitchen and taproom, too. And it's all heated by geothermal energy. You say geothermal and people's eyes glaze over a lot of times because it sounds so technical and scientific, but it's so simple, and that's what I love about it. Just a little ways underground, the Earth maintains a fairly stable temperature. In New York State, it's about 50 to 55 degrees year-round. Geothermal systems harness that warmth to provide heating when it's cold out. Under Bloom's greenhouse, thousands of feet of plastic drainage pipes snake back and forth. Fans pull the air through the pipes and into the building. Let's say it's zero degrees outside. When you feel that air come out of the vents, the geothermal vents, it's going to feel like heating. The system requires only a little energy to run, and it helps Bloom avoid using more expensive and polluting sources of heat like natural gas or propane. During the winter, the greenhouse does get cool but the plants stay alive and hearty customers gather to enjoy local food and beer in a -a one-of-a-kind setting. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz, and this is Climate Connections. Surviving a hurricane or wildfire can be traumatic, and people who are displaced from their homes may suffer anxiety, PTSD, or depression. Children are especially vulnerable because they may not have coping skills yet, and they depend on adults who may be struggling themselves. So they experience those things firsthand, but then they also often are impacted by their parents' emotional distress at living through that same disaster. Christy Manning of McAllister College is co-author of a recent report on climate change and children's mental health that was released by the American Psychological Association and nonprofit EcoAmerica. She says even young people who have not directly experienced a disaster may feel anxiety about the climate crisis. They worry about the future and that adults are not taking more action. So to support kids, the report suggests screening them for distress and improving access to mental health services for young people and families. Parental well-being is really essential to children's well-being, so communities need to support parents. And she recommends engaging kids in climate action, 
so they develop a sense of agency while facing an uncertain future. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Many everyday choices, like washing your clothes in cold instead of hot water, are an opportunity to help reduce carbon pollution. A new book called The Climate Action Handbook gives people 100 ways to improve their habits at home and champion climate solutions in their communities. The premise for the book was that every action matters because we need everyone doing what they can and what they're good at. Author Heidi Roop says that as a climate scientist, she spent a lot of time talking about the problem, but she did not always have a good answer for people who asked her what to do about it. And so the Climate Action Handbook is an attempt to try to answer that question to invite as many people in as possible to see themselves as part of the solution. The guide provides lots of ideas, like eating more plant-based meals, choosing slower shipping for deliveries, voting in every election, and supporting youth climate activists. The ideas are accompanied by striking illustrations that help readers understand what they can do and why it makes a difference. Coming up with the list was really my own learning process to say what are the ways, big and small, that all matter, that we can show up and make climate a part of the decision that we make every day. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. And now we hear from the Melbourne Age in a story written by Caroline Schell. The headline is Incredible Rain. Storms the Battle of Victoria, prompting flash flood warnings. Here is the audio from that story. Victorians are being warned to brace for heavy rainfall and flash flooding, with severe weather to sweep across the state from Sunday. The Bureau of Meteorology and Key State Emergency Services held a joint press conference in Melbourne on Saturday to alert Victorians to the looming severe weather threat. Bureau forecaster Michael Efron said the moisture in the air was incredible and there would be significant storms. The amount of moisture across the state, that's what you would normally see in somewhere like Queensland, he said. The conditions are ripe for some really significant thunderstorms through western parts on Sunday and then for the Melbourne area early hours on Monday. Areas that can expect heavy rainfall on Sunday include the Horsham, Warwick-Nabeel, Charlton, Swan Hill and Mildura regions. On Monday, the severe weather is set to move towards the centre and northeast of the state, hitting Bendigo, Seymour, Echuca, Wangaratta, Albury, Wodonga, Benalla and Bright. Efron warned that rainfall could reach 60 mm an hour. Through the rest of Saturday, we are going to issue severe weather warnings for heavy rainfall covering large parts of central and northern, northeastern Victoria, he said. Victorian Emergency Management Commissioner Rick Nugent said the extreme rain would put pressure on already full rivers, creeks and water catchments across the state. A flood watch has been issued for much of central and northern Victoria for minor to moderate flooding. It's highly likely that there will be flash floods in flood-prone areas, Nugent said. He urged people who were holidaying to stay alert to warnings and their surroundings, particularly if they were staying at caravan parks or camping near waterways. Nugent also issued a plea for people not to drive in floodwater. You're driving a car, not a boat. We don't want emergency service personnel having to rescue people during this event, he said. Victorian says boss Tim Weebush said it could be the last decision a driver made. We've already seen 20 flood rescues from the start of 2024 and that's 22 many, and unnecessarily ties up our emergency services. 
On Tuesday, a man and his dog were swept away in their car during flash flooding in the state's west before they were rescued from the vehicle's roof. Twitter link. Weebush said the Avoca and Loddon rivers were expected to rise, and that the state was seeing, phenomena we haven't seen for some time. We are often seeing those links to tropical moisture around the summer period, so, not quite unusual, but we haven't seen a significant event like we're about to experience for some time. Efron said the impact of El Niño in Victoria had been most felt in spring. We actually saw that September was our driest on record. Other climate factors were impacting the summer weather, including the southern annular mode, Efron added. That is producing these really humid and unstable conditions across the state, and that's combined with sea surface temperatures well above average across the Tasman Sea, he said. Everyone would have noticed the humidity, and I think we're likely to see that continuing through the rest of this month. Now we have a story from the Washington Post. It's by Harry Stevens and has the headline, Can you guess how crazy last year's weather was? Try this game. Harry's story begins. The pollsters here at the Washington Post recently asked 1,404 random Americans, do you think human activity is or is not causing changes to the world's climate, including an increase in average temperature? Would you have said yes? If so, three-quarters of people we polled agree with you, as does every scientist I've ever asked about it, as do I. So sure, human-caused global warming is happening, but there are harder questions. How fast is it warming, exactly? Is the ocean warming faster than the rest of the planet? How has warming affected other parts of the environment, like sea ice? Below you'll see a few charts showing monthly climate data over the past 40 years. Here's the game. Draw your guess for each month of 2023. When you're done drawing, you can compare your guess to the real data. And now we have another story from the Melbourne Age, and this one is by Anika Smethurst. It has the headline, the projects that would supercharge Victoria's green energy future, but are stuck in limbo. The story begins. Wind, solar and energy storage projects that would drive Victoria's switch from coal power and cut electricity costs are stuck in limbo as they wait for state government to make a call on planning approvals. Investors are waiting years for permission to build renewable energy projects across Victoria, and the sector says... This is a major hurdle for the government's green energy intentions. As part of its commitment to cut commissions, the Allen government has set an ambitious target of 95% for all electricity come from renewable energy by 2035 in an effort to reduce emissions and drive down bills. Key to this is the rehabilitation of the State Electricity Commission, SEC, which the state government says will deliver 4.5 gigawatts of new power through renewable energy and storage projects, enough for about 1.5 million homes. The Sunday Age has identified at least 10 solar, wind and battery projects still waiting for state government approval, which, if given, would deliver more than two-thirds of the capacity promised as part of the revived SEC. Now we switch to a story from Euronews Green, where Angela Simons writes, 
Heavy rains have pummeled Germany, France and the Netherlands over the last two weeks, causing persistent flooding and even one death in France. The story has the headline, Why are France, Germany and England flooded? And is climate change to blame? Angela's story continues. Towns in the north of the country were left underwater on Thursday and hundreds of people have been evacuated in recent days. The area was hit by flooding in November and December and some towns still haven't recovered. Widespread flooding also hit central England and more heavy rain is forecast in southern areas. On Thursday evening, more than 220 flood warnings and almost 300 flood alerts remained in place across the country. The flooding comes just days after Storm Hink, named by official weather services of Britain, Ireland and Netherlands, battered large areas of England and Wales, leaving the ground saturated and prone to flooding. So what's behind this perilous weather? Yes, we're here again at the end of another episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And beyond that, I'd love to know what you think about this podcast. So please email me at number 7 at iCloud.com. Now, don't hold back. Good or bad, please let me know. Also, please share this with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Who's saying what? Who's doing what? Who's not? Who is? what we should do and what we should be saying and who we should be talking to. So please share it. Also, my screen is still alive with stories about the climate crisis, so I'll put links to all those, or as many as I can, in the show notes. So please go there, check them out, read them, think about it, think about what you can do. Yes, what you can do to help resolve the climate crisis or help slow the climate crisis. And what you can say to others that might encourage them to come on board and help resolve the climate crisis. To solve everything, of course, it's going to take everyone. So we need you on board, we need all your friends on board, we need everybody you know. So, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, take care and stay safe.